If you're visiting with us this morning, we're studying the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order, and we find ourselves in John chapter 10, verse 22. Now, it was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. And then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe, because you're not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them everlasting life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. And then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? And the Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. And of course, they have it exactly backwards. He was God who made himself man. And Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? And if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scriptures cannot be broken, do you say of him who the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe in me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. And there therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for another opportunity to have it be sown into our lives. And we long for these verses to be like every passage in the Bible, Lord, to be a part of a working place in each one of our lives, active in how we process life, how we see things, how we feel about life. All these things, Lord, we want to have dominated by your word. And so we pray that you would open it up to us. Show us why it's in your word, Lord, and, and give it that place in our lives. And we want to obey anything that you tell us in your word. And we realize that as we do, we're building our lives on a, on a rock on a foundation that cannot be moved, building a house on a, a, a stone that won't give way in the storms of life. And that's what we want to have, that kind of security and assurance in our lives. So meet with us this morning, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, through your word. And we ask that you would not only strengthen your children in this room, Lord, but that you would bless your people all over this city and all over the surrounding cities where your word is being taught. Continue to strengthen, Lord, the body of Christ. Continue to equip it, Lord. Continue to move us forward in your plan in this time in human history. And we want the whole body of Christ to be strong and for us to be in this little part of the world what we need to be. And so bless all this morning, we pray. 
And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This conversation of Jesus with the Jewish religious leaders took place in the area of the tabernacle or the, the, the temple in the city of Jerusalem during what is known as the Feast of Dedication. And when we see here that he is talking with the Jews and the Jews confronting him, we have to remember that this wasn't the common, ordinary Jewish person that was in Jesus' face in this kind of way. That most often when John speaks of the Jews in his gospel, he's talking about the Jewish religious leaders. And that certainly is who is, is getting after Jesus here a little bit in this, this passage. There's a time gap of about two to three months between verse 21 and verse 22. The events that took place from, that we've been studying in recent weeks, all the way from John chapter 7 to uh, verse 21 of, of chapter 10, those all took place during a feast known as the Feast of Tabernacles, which is uh, October-ish on our calendar and uh, celebrated year in and year out even to this day by the Jews in that part of the calendar. Here we're told that these events took place during the Feast of Dedication and further we're told that it was winter. And we know the F Jewish Feast of Dedication more commonly as the Jewish celebration of Hanukkah. So that's the time of the year. It's December is the time of the year. And of course December is uh, a winter month and, and fills in some blanks for us to understand a little bit about what's happening with Jesus here and, and surrounding him and certainly the context of, of all of this, this discussion that occurs. We're told that Jesus there in verse 23 was surrounded by the Jewish religious leaders and uh, while walking in the area of the temple known as Solomon's Porch. And Solomon's Porch was a very large kind of open area, courtyard, in that uh, ancient temple. And uh, one of the things that was unique about that uh, Solomon's courtyard was on, e on either end of, of uh, two sides of the courtyard, there was an overhang. There was a roof with a long colonnade so that when the weather was cold or it was rainy, you could still go to the temple and not be standing right out in the elements and, uh, you know, get wet and get cold and catch pneumonia and die or something like that. So you could go to the temple, and it was very, very common not only for the average person to go to the temple in any kind of weather, but even in that winter time, for the rabbis to do so. And they would simply, instead of being out in the middle of the courtyard, they would spend their time walking along the colonnades under the roof. And uh, they would be praising the Lord, as would the common person. They'd be worshiping the Lord, giving the Lord thanks, just meeting with God and communing with Him. And it wasn't unusual for the rabbis in those days to then use that as an opportunity to teach their disciples. And so as they would be walking along, it's a little bit cold weather. Sometimes you don't want to just be standing in one place while you're being taught. Uh, you want to keep the bones moving and the joints from freezing up on you. So the rabbis would simply walk and they'd be followed by their disciples. They would talk to their disciples and instruct them. And Jesus might very well have been engaged in that activity when all of this uh, unfolded. You notice in verse 24 that when the religious leaders approached Jesus that were told specifically that they surrounded him and literally they closed in on him. And it's an effort on their part. So just kind of like if, 
You're walking along and then all of a sudden you've got people in front of you and then you look over here and they're over here too and you look and suddenly surround us like the mafia working on you or something. So he's just going along and pretty soon he's surrounded by these religious leaders and they are intent on stopping him from walking and uh, they want his full undivided attention. They want him to stop and listen to what they have to say. And they stop him in order to pose a particular question to him, a question that is at the forefront of their minds and very important to them to ask uh, Jesus. And the question was, if you are the Christ, that is the Messiah, tell us plainly. Now that question is a very, very dishonest question on, on their part because Jesus had already answered this question multiple times in their past. They had asked him over and over again whether he was the promised Messiah, and over and over again he had told them that indeed he was, and not only was he the promised Messiah, but that he was also uh, the Son of God. And so over and over again they keep uh, asking him to plainly declare whether he is the Messiah, and uh, they do it again here. And the reason that they do it again here is every time he do- they ask, he tells them that he is the Messiah. They don't like the answer, so they keep hoping they might catch him on a day where he might change his mind or change his answer related to it. And so they're hoping for a different answer from him. And their question is really an accusation against Jesus. It intimates that. Their lack of faith in Jesus as the Messiah is uh, some fault of Jesus's. That if only he had, would be a little bit clearer with them, if the evidence was only a little bit clearer, that surely they would be his disciples. And so they're trying to lay the blame on him for their lack of faith. Now Jesus' answer to them is, is an interesting one in verses 25 through 27. In verse 25, he reminds them that he had already plainly told them that he was the Messiah, but they had refused to believe it. So he lets them know that their unbelief was in no way caused by his lack of clarity, but that they did not believe in him as the Messiah for the simple reason that they were determined not to believe in him. There's nothing more that Jesus could have said or been or done for them to put their faith in him as in the Messiah because nothing could be done greater than what he had already done, short of his his resurrection. So no matter what evidence was put before them, they were determined not to believe in him. And Jesus' life and his teaching and his miracles and all of the scriptures, they all testify to the fact that Jesus was and is the promised Messiah. I mean, the only honest conclusion that a person can come to in reading Jesus' life in the Gospels, reading how he lived, what he taught, the miracles that he did, the witness of the scriptures to his life, is to properly conclude this is the promised Messiah. I mean, Jesus is unique in human history. There's not another one like him. It wasn't like these people were coming or it come in human history every 10 years or every 40 years or even every 1,000 years. There's only one person who's lived this life. And the life that he lived stood out so uniquely from all other lives that you couldn't just say this is another guy that's just tumbling along in, 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 in human history. So his life 
to look at it, and even to this day and in this room, to take a Bible, read that life, and to be an honest seeker related to Him, is to come to the conclusion that He was exactly who He said He was. But they are unwilling to allow any of that evidence to, to uh, impact them. Now, in verse 26, Jesus declares the real reason for their unbelief. And He said that they did not believe because they were not his sheep. That is, they refused to believe in Jesus as the Messiah in the face of, un, you know, just incredible evidence for faith in him because, Jesus said, they lacked the disposition of his sheep. They lacked the characteristics of his sheep. They refused to listen to Jesus' voice. They did not want a personal relationship with Jesus. And number three, they were unwilling to follow Jesus. And Jesus said these are the real reasons for their unbelief. Now having said that to them, Jesus then heads into one of the most beautiful declarations related to concerning the security of a believer's salvation to be found in all of the Bible. Notice again in verse 27 the characteristics of a Christian, of a sheep who is a part of Jesus' flock. He said, number one, they hear Jesus' voice. At some point in time in their life, every Christian, every member of Jesus' flock, at some point in time in their life, they heard Jesus' voice to them to follow Him and become a part of His flock. At some point in time... They heard the gospel that spoke to them, spoke to us of our sin, of our need for the forgiveness of sin, of God's love for us and sending Jesus into the world to provide us with forgiveness, to provide us with salvation. And in that moment in time that we heard that gospel, we heard His voice, the light went on by the person of the Holy Spirit and we became a part of His flock. We made Him our Savior. I hope everybody remembers the time you heard that gospel and the Spirit of God gave that witness to you that this is the truth and then you said, I'm going to listen to this voice and I'm going to become a part of His flock. The second characteristic of a Christian is, Jesus said, is that He knows them. He, he declares there, and I know them. The Greek word for the word know there is an interesting one. It's the Greek word gnosko. Uh, there's several different Greek words for know. One of them uh, speaks of intuitive knowledge and different, different kinds of knowing. Uh, the Greek language is a rich language. I just know a handful of words. Don't be impressed. But I know gnosko and it's important to me. The word gnosko means to have a knowledge that comes by experience. And that's what Jesus is declaring. Jesus is declaring that concerning his sheep, he has an experiential knowledge of them, which is another way of saying that he has a personal relationship with them. The third characteristic of, of his sheep is that they follow Jesus. Their life is characterized by a willingness to follow his leading, a willingness to obey his teaching. Now, notice what Jesus declares 
of such sheep. Notice he declares in verse 28 that such sheep, or we, have eternal life. I think it's wonderful as a Christian to sit in a room like this and to realize that everlasting life is not something I'm going to have someday. It's not something I'm going to have when I die. I have everlasting life right now. That's our possession right now as Christians. Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have, present tense, everlasting life. Notice number two in verse 28 concerning these sheep. We shall never perish. That's Jesus' promise to us as Christians, that we will never perish. I will never ever face the judgment that my sin deserves. And the reason that I will never face the judgment that my sin deserves is because Jesus bore that judgment for me on the cross of Calvary. We will never, ever perish. How long is never, ever? <laughs> it's a long time. It's a good thing to know. To say, well, we're, the, Jesus doesn't say, so I'm going to take care of you for 2,000 years. After that, all bets are off. How relaxed would you be today? Oh, I know all about me. I'm dead in 2,000 years. There'd be no joy for the next 2,000 years because we know we'd blow it. So he says, we'll never perish as members of his flock. Notice also in verse 28, Jesus declared that we are in his hands and no one shall snatch us out of his hand. No man, no animal, no beast, no demon, no entire demonic realm can snatch us out of Jesus' hand. Now, the reason that they can't do that is because his grip on our lives is greater than all of those other things that would try to tear us out of his grip. Again, I think it's wonderful to realize that my salvation is based upon Jesus' power to keep me and not in my own power to keep myself. My salvation is based upon His ability to grip me, and not upon the grip that I have on God, as strong as that grip may be. I have two daughters, Karen and I do, and they're both adults now. But I remember when they were little girls, and I'd take them for a walk, and we come to an intersection to cross the street and I say, we're going to cross the street here. We're going to look both ways, take a hold of Daddy's hand so we can, we can do that. And they'd take a hold of, of my hand before we cross the street. And isn't it one of the greatest feelings in life to have a child take hold of your hand and put their trust in, in your hand? And so I'd take, put my hands out and they'd grab them and you can feel just that little, that's all they got, you know, it, you're no danger of crushing you. But I mean, it's what they got and they take hold of, of your hand. And in my consciousness, I realize that I am going to get them safely across this street, not on the basis of their grip on my hand. We will make it from this corner to that corner on the basis of the grip 
that I have on their hand. And so we would move across the street and there is nothing that could cause me to lessen my grip upon their hands to get them safely to the other side. That's the kind of grip that Jesus has upon each one of us as Christians. In the, in the same way, we are going to one day be in heaven based upon His grip and not our grip upon Him. As, as wonderful it is, as it is to hold on as best as we can, our true security is based upon His hold on our hands. Notice also in verses 29 and 30 that we're not only in Jesus' hands, but we're in the Father's hands. And Jesus said, no one is able to snatch us out of the Father's hand either. And Jesus, when he declares there in verse 30 that he and the Father are one, he's not talking, I, I, he's not talking about, you know, theologically in the Godhead and all these things. He is saying, in terms of your security, in terms of walking you through this life and delivering you safely into the glory of heaven, both I and my Father are united together in our determination to deliver you safely there. Now, that's tremendous. Either one of them could do it on their own. But to know that they are united together in, in that purpose... To, to bring us into heaven is just tremendous. And, of course, it does what it's intended to do, and that is produce a great peace in our lives. I, I never read this section of John chapter 10 without thinking about an old advertising campaign by, by Allstate Insurance Company. They may even still have the same uh, you know, kind of statement that they make for their commercials. But one of the things that they would declare concerning Allstate Insurance Company was that you're in good hands with Allstate. And they'd close the commercial with these two gigantic hands, you know, like this. And it was, all of it was intended to communicate uh, the, the idea of ultimate security. There's no greater security than to be in the good hands of Allstate. I don't know what their stock is doing today. I'm glad there's something sure than, than that. But you'd see that, and the idea was to, to communicate that security. We think about Jesus speaking here about the hands that our salvation is in. The most important thing that we have in life is our personal relationship with God and our salvation that He's given to us. You say, where, where, what's the safe place that that, that can be in? And all the ebb and flow and the ups and downs and the craziness and the madness of planet Earth. And they're in the safe, our salvation is the safest hands they can be in. The hands of the Father and, and of the Son. Our eternities, our lives are in the hands of Jesus and the Father. Now, those really are the, the, the good hands people. So, you cannot express the security of a believer's salvation any more strongly than Jesus does in this passage. The salvation isn't, uh, here it is, hope you make it. Uh, here it is, is a nice thought. Here it is, here's your salvation, hope you got it, and you can give it to me at the end of your life. We would, none of us would be a nervous wreck our whole life if it depended on us to hold on to it in, in the course of this life and then deliver it to him at, at the end of, of our life. So he doesn't give us that, I hope, I hope you make it kind of salvation. He gives us a sure salvation. 
And having become a member of Jesus' flock, Jesus now keeps us secure. Let me read you some passages in this, this vein. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul wrote, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Our salvation is so sure that God speaks of it in the past tense. Romans chapter 8. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he, that is the Lord, predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, here it is, these he also glorified, past tense. Our salvation is so sure that God already sees us in the glory of heaven. John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus declared, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has, present tense, everlasting life and shall not come into judgment but is passed from death into life. John chapter 6, verse 39. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up on the last day. He will not lose a single one of us between here and heaven. What you, here's a word you'll never hear God say. Oops. Where'd I leave that? He never loses his keys. He never loses his car in the parking lot. That's ridiculous. Who could do that? You're young yet. He never ever says, where did I, where did I leave Kyle? That never happens. Don't leave, lose track of a single one of us. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 18, Paul declared, And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Ephesians chapter 1. There's only 70 more. Just relax on this. I love this stuff. <laughs> it's wonderful. Ephesians chapter 1. In him you also trusted speaking of Jesus, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. The Holy Spirit is involved in our security and keeping. First Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has borne us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, 
to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And this you rejoice greatly, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. Romans chapter 8 again. This is this one. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, or recession? That's why I put that in there. That's not really in there. <laughs> As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now listen to this, Paul said. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Apostle Paul ransacks the universe to try and find one thing that would have the ability to separate us from the will of God and His plan for our life and our eternity. And he comes up empty-handed. Finally, Jude, in a, what is a favorite I know of so many of us, verses 24 and 25, Now unto Him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. In the light of Jesus' teaching in John chapter 10, and in the light of all of these statements of the Bible and the statements of Jesus, no Christian should ever spend even a moment of their life doubting their salvation. Or doubting that one day God is going to deliver them into the beauty and the majesty of heaven. That we will one day safely make it there. Our salvation is absolutely sure and it cannot be any more sure than it is. Now, why is our salvation so uh, secure and so sure? Well, our salvation is a sure salvation because it isn't based upon our works. It isn't based upon our human effort. Our salvation is, is a sure salvation because it's a gift given to us by God based upon our faith in Jesus' finished work upon the cross. If he, if he came to us and said, Listen, I'll save you, but you've got to keep yourself saved. I, he couldn't... He couldn't base our salvation on anything weaker at that point. And I know that you're just like me. If our salvation was based upon how good of a day we had today versus yesterday or versus tomorrow, and it's just too many ups and downs, as hard as we try, as serious as we are about the things of the Lord, it's not a sure place, our, 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 our works and our good deeds to base salvation on. 
Our salvation is a sure one because it's based upon Jesus' work upon the cross. And on the cross, Jesus provided mankind with a finished salvation. It's one of the most beautiful things. He said seven things on the cross while he hung upon the cross that are recorded for us in Scripture. And one of the most beautiful is he cried out, It is finished. What is finished? The provision of man's salvation through his death upon the cross for our sins. He didn't say, it is begun, or it's started, I've given you a good step forward in salvation, and now you need to work hard, and if you put enough into it, and you huff and you puff, you can blow your way into heaven, you know, or some kind of thing like that. It, it, it isn't something that we complete on our own. Jesus has provided us with a finished salvation. And you know, when something's finished, it's finished. When something's finished, if you try to add to it, you'll mar it. It wouldn't be finished if you could add something to it and improve it. The salvation cannot be improved upon. It cannot be added to. Otherwise, his salvation wouldn't be called finished. Paul wrote to the Ephesians and he said, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself is a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. So what do we do? We receive God's gift of salvation, and then we rest in it. We rest in it. God has supplied us with a finished, sure salvation. Our salvation is as sure as God's promises, as sure as the keeping power of the Father and the Son. And as we've seen through all of through these verses that we've read and all of these other verses that I read to you, the entire tone of the New Testament is to emphasize the security of the believer in the heart of the Christian. That our salvation is a sure, finished, secure salvation that God has given to us. Sometimes... Now, people get a little uncomfortable with giving Christians that kind of an assurance related to their salvation. In fact, some of you, depending on your background, may be a little uncomfortable yourselves uh, this morning. There's a certain kind of person that looks and says, Listen, uh, Kyle, you make a great mistake in telling people to be that secure in their salvation. Because if you know anything about Christians... You know you've got to use every bit of leverage you have, anything you can find, to keep them in line. And if you don't hang them over hell at least once in a while, at least monthly, and not for seconds but for minutes, if you don't make them just a little uncertain, if they go to the left or the right, that they're going to lose their salvation, then you're going to end up with a bunch of people that aren't serious about walking with God. They won't be obedient to the things of God. They'll go out and just wildly and openly sin, and at best you'll end up with, uh, you end up with lukewarm Christians, and probably you'll end up with a bunch of carnal Christians. Now, you better keep them uncertain about their salvation. That's one of the ways you keep them in line. It's also good for the offerings, by the way. (laughs) 
But he's going to think, well, I'm on my way to heaven, so it doesn't matter what kind of life I live, so I'm just going to go out and live any old kind of, of life that, that, I, that I want to. But the Bible teaches that real Christianity is a life of obedience that's lived in response to the salvation that Jesus has provided for us. You can get people to obey for an hour, for a day, for a week, or a month or something like that by hanging them over to over hell and making them afraid if they do this or that they'll lose their salvation and all and I mean you can keep keep them coming in every week and hang them over hell just a little bit more and, and they've got the fear in them again you know and they go out and another week and you come back and you you know retry to inoculate them again and give them another shot of the, of the same stuff no one will ever walk consistently and outwardly in, in the privacy of our life under that motivation because it's a lower motivation the one that God has given to us. Christianity is intended to be a response on our part to all of the wonderful, free, incredible blessings that God has given us in Jesus. And where we look at Jesus and we look at the Father and we say, I cannot believe that you would bless me so richly that, number one, you would save a person like me, that, number two, you'd give me a fresh start, that you would entrust me with the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would allow me to carry... Lord, I used to be ashamed of my name. You let me associate your name with my life and to think about how rich He's been to us, how good He's been to us, what that produces within our hearts is a desire then in response to the free salvation He's given to, to me, in response to the relationship that He's established with me, I now want to obey Him, not to earn anything from Him, but just as a way to say thank you in some small way for how good you have been to me, a sinner, and how good you have been to me in Christ. That's Christianity. That's what Christianity is. The Bible says we love Him... Because, it's a response word, He first loved us. And to obey God in response as an act of worship to God for how He's blessed us in Christ, that's the motivation that stands up to the nitty-gritty of life, the daily of life, the decades of life, all of life. It's interesting, you go to the book of Ephesians in the New Testament and and it's kind of a model of this very thing. The book of Ephesians is uh, six chapters. And the first three chapters all deal with one thing. And the second breakup of three chapters, it all deals with a, a different thing. So it's, it's basically two subjects that it's dealing with. And in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, you read through that, and it's just line after line, sentence after sentence, verse after verse, paragraph after paragraph, chapter after chapter of God telling us how blessed we are in Christ Jesus. All the things that He has done for us, freely done for us. He's adopted us into His family. He has saved us. 
He, he has filled us with His Holy Spirit. He's made us the temple of the Holy Spirit. He's made us a part of the body of Christ. He's joined Jew and Gentile together in order to glorify His name. He's forgiven us all these different things and it's just one thing after another after another of the blessings and all. And then He begins the very first verse of, of Ephesians chapter 4. And he shifts gears there, and only then does Paul say, I therefore, that's a response word, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to have a walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. And what Paul does is for three chapters he lays out all the great things that God has done for us. And then he says, in essence, I know that you are going to want to express your thanksgiving to God for how rich He's made you in Christ. Now let me tell you what a life that is a proper response to that looks like. And that's chapters 4 through 6. And he starts to lay it out. And then a person looks at those things that God commands us to do and doesn't look and say, well, I've got to do this thing, and God's making me do these things, and I don't know why, and it's so hard. We look at it, and, and, and as we look at those commandments, we say, I can't believe that God has given me clear instruction on how to express this heart that is so filled with thanksgiving and worship toward Him for all of these blessings that He's given me in Christ. But He didn't start with chapters 4 through 6. He started by telling us, so that then the obedient life would be a response to what Christ has first done for us. Hmm. I think of the Apostle Paul. I don't know that anybody ran harder than he ran as a Christian. You think about the life that he lived, his faithfulness to his ministry and all. You wonder what in the world motivated him. I mean, what motivated that kind of a life? And we don't even have to guess what the answer is because he gives us the answer. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. He said, for the love of Christ constrains us. The love of Christ constrains us. In essence, he's saying, when I think about Jesus' love for me, demonstrated in his death upon the cross, it is that love for me that lays hold of me and makes me desire to live an obedient life for God. And that's the motivation. That's the highest motivation, is to obey out of thanksgiving over the love that God has first shown us. I never look at the Scriptures and say, He wants me to do what? I mean, was He one arm and a leg? I mean, this is ridiculous. You look at the promise, you look at the, the, the commandments of God that God gives us, and I turn to those promises. Listen, I'm, no, I'm not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But I, I, I look at, at those commandments that He gives, and I say, this is another way for me to obey and express my thanksgiving to God for what He's freely done for me in Christ. And that's the way to view it. Sometimes you can look and say, well, the love of God seems to let people get away with bloody murder out there. I mean, I know a Christian that's out there and he's out in the world and he's just living a life and he's disobeying God on the right and on the left and the whole thing. Let me tell you something. He's not having a bit of fun. The hardest thing in the world to sin against is not rules, 
Not commandments that are detached from a relationship with God. The hardest thing in the world to sin against is love. When you know in your heart, this person has been nothing but good to me. This God has blessed me up one side and down the other, and I'm out here responding to that love in this kind of a life by living in disobedience to his word and living this kind of a life. That'll get to a person. Sooner or later, by the Spirit of God, that gets to a person. And you just sit and you, you don't even want to, apart from the chastening of the Lord that occurs in that kind of a life, but you, you look at yourself and anyone that understands at all what Christ has done for us, you sit and you look at yourself and say, what kind of a little, pathetic, thankless, small human being am I? That I would respond to the greatness of God's love and what He's invested in me by living this kind of life? And if there's any life in that kind of person, you'll come out from, will come out from under it just because it, it brings its own conviction upon our lives. Love is very, very hard to, to sin against. And, and God knows it. And so He's made response to His love the high motivation for living a life of obedience to Him. That's what Christianity is. A response to what God has done for us. Now I just want to live a simple life of obedience. Don't want to be famous. Don't want to be this. I just want to live a simple life of obedience as a simple, small way of saying thanks for all of that. Now in closing, I I do want to mention there's a certain kind of person who should be very careful not to glean a sense of uh, a false sense of security from Jesus' teaching here. There is the person who professes to be a Christian, but they don't live a life that even remotely resembles obedience to God's word. Again, in verse 26, Jesus declared that those who are his sheep, they'll follow him, they'll obey his word, they'll obey his leading. But none of those things, obeying his word, obeying his leading, none of that uh, characterizes this kind of person's uh, life. And if a person considers themselves to be a Christian, in obedience to God's word, obedience to his leading means nothing to that person. They need to look very seriously at whether they really are a Christian at all. I'm not talking about being perfect. None of us is perfect. But there should be growth. There should be conviction of sin. There should be a desire to live a holy life and a desire to obey uh, God. So, for example, you've got a person who goes forward at an invitation after a service when they're eight years old. And they come forward and they pray the sinner's prayer and, and that whole thing goes on. And now you run into them at the age of 58 and 50 years have gone by and they haven't not for one single day of those 50 years lived for God or obeyed God. They've lived like the devil the whole 50 years. That person shouldn't have take any security away from what Jesus is saying here because they don't match the type of person that makes up his flock. That person needs to take a hard look at what kind of a commitment they really did make to the Lord. If there's a person that considers themselves to be a Christian and they say, I don't care, God saved me and I'm going to go live whatever kind of life of sin that I, I want to do and I don't care what anybody says, well, that person ought to have some real doubts 
about whether they're part of, of Jesus' flock. The, the Apostle James wrote, James chapter 2, he said, Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there's one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O oh foolish man, that faith without works is dead? And the point that James is making is that we are, we are not saved on the basis of our works, but a person who is truly born and again and saved will have works following that experience. It is impossible for God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit to come into a human life and for there not to have change occur in that human life. And so he says, faith without works is dead. True faith will always be followed by a changed life. And the solution for the person that looks and says, well, I made that profession a long time ago, but now I've, I've never lived a lick for God, you know, since then. That person needs to repent and needs to, like any sinner, settle the issue of Jesus' lordship uh, in their life and confess their sin, receive him now once and for all as Savior, as Lord, and begin a real relationship with him and the life of obedience that follows it. But for the rest of us, verse 27 again, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one in this. Our salvation cannot be any more sure than it is. Let's rest in it. Let's enjoy it. Let's celebrate it. And let's respond to it with a life of just simple obedience to the God who has found a way to not only save but keep saved a people like you and me. I think it's wonderful to realize from this passage that Jesus not only has the ability to save us, but he also has the ability to keep us all through this life and one day into the very glory of heaven itself. That's wonderful. That's something to respond to. That's a peace-giving, peace-anchor for our hearts. Great joy and blessing from the mouth of Jesus himself. Let's stand together and we'll pray.